Today, I have two guests, both affiliated with the Cage Club Network. You may have heard them on their own podcasts. First up, we have from Wistful Thinking is Kara O'Regan. Kara, welcome. Hello. I'm so excited to talk about more Jurassic Parks. I should say welcome back. You are my first returning guest. Yeah, I feel so special. We'll get into it, but last episode you were on for Jaws was also a Steven Spielberg franchise, so second Spielberg franchise. Mm -hmm. If I do another Spielberg movie, I guess you're going to have to be on there. That's okay. I'm okay with that. (laughs) My second guest, if you've heard Cinemaker Steven Soderbergh, you know his voice. He's been on several episodes of Cage Club, Keanu Club, and he's got his own show, the contenders. That's right. That's it. Please welcome to the show Tobin Addington. Hey guys, I am uh, very excited to be here to talk about this movie. All right. This is your first time. Welcome to the show. Yeah. This is very exciting. <laughs> yeah. So Jurassic Park, dinosaurs. This is an enormous franchise. I think the biggest one so far covered on the show, just to bring you guys up to speed a little bit. And if this is your first time listening so far, there has been Superman 3, Jaws 3, Rocky 3, and Alien 3, and now Jurassic Park 3. The way I start off the show is I like to ask my guests their history with the franchise to start it off. Tobin, starting with you, since Kara, you've been on before, so... Should you make me go first? <laughs> if you don't mind, what is your history with the Jurassic Park franchise? Uh, you know, have you seen all the films? Do you, have a, do you have a favorite film? When was the first time you saw this movie? Can you please tell us a little bit about your history with Jurassic Park? I certainly can. So I read the book for the first movie before the movie came out, the Michael Crichton novel, and I think it was eighth grade and was just enraptured by this thing. I should say that before that, I would think I was in fourth or fifth grade. I went on a dinosaur dig with my dad. We like slept in a teepee and it was it was a dig run by Jack Horner, who's the guy who the Sam Neill character was based on here, here in Montana. Oh, oh. And Montana, major shout out to Montana and the Jurassic Park franchise as well. That's right. That's right. So I had that history with dinosaurs, right? Then I read this book and I'm just, I'm totally in love with this book. And then the movie comes out and my dad and two of my buddies and I, my two buddies and I leave an eighth grade graduation party early to go to the first movie in the theater. And I went to it nine times in the theater. I went to see it in a drive-in. I went to see it in like a dollar theater where there was like literally speakers on top of brown boxes, you know, like just a completely crappy theater. And then I saw it at, uh, the first movie a tenth time when it was re-released in 3D just to sort of round out the... So that's the movie I've seen the most in the theater my entire life. And I've seen this one, number three. I think I've seen it. This is maybe my third or fourth viewing of it. Didn't see it in the theater. It's all been sort of on DVD. And the first one is far and away my favorite of the franchise. So any quick thoughts about Lost World, Jurassic Park, or Jurassic World? 
Any quick thoughts on those? I really dislike The Lost World. I rewatch that one every couple of years thinking, oh, it can't be as bad as I remember it. And then I just find it to be, especially for Spielberg, almost unwatchable. I can't I can't handle the second one. I've only seen Jurassic World once, and it was, it was fun, but it evaporated pretty quickly out of my brain after I left the theater. So it doesn't have much purchase in my mind. Kara, how about yourself? History with Jurassic Park. Now, I just want to mention... Quickly, I, I did listen to the Wistful Thinking podcast episode on Jurassic Park, which is very good, and I encourage everyone to go listen to. So I know a little bit about your past with the franchise, but could you please go a little more in-depth for the listeners? Yeah, well, feel free to remind me if I forget <laughs> anything. <laughs> but yeah, so like you said, we did Jurassic Park recently for Wistful Thinking, which was really fun. I definitely read the book as a kid, and I don't remember exactly when, but I remember people saying to me, like, aren't you a little young to be reading that? But the movie, I actually, because I watched it recently for Wistful Thinking and then was going to be watching this, I decided to watch the second one, The Lost World, in the interim. And I realized, as much as I, I do love and definitely did see the original several times just this has happened to me with other movies Terminator specifically where like I've definitely seen the second one more than I've seen the first one I think probably just by nature of like the year that I was born right, I right. just was like at the right age at the right time but yeah no I'm I love dinosaurs always love dinosaurs the first movie is great the second one not so good this one also not that great. <laughs> and I think the way that Tobin put Jurassic World evaporating from his brain kind of as soon as he saw it. I saw it once and had a, a similar experience with that. Let's go three for three, sharing thoughts on Lost World. I love this franchise, like, ever since it came out. Like, I, I Tobin and I are pretty close in age, yeah. but I didn't read the book when this came out. I kind of felt like it was a little maybe over my head at the time, but my mom was a huge reader, is a huge reader, and I remember seeing the cover mm -hmm. and just being captivated by the graphic. Right, right. And it was just like, oh, I knew dinosaurs were coming back to the modern day, and that's what all I knew it was about going in. I've seen all three in theaters. I was just at the theater where I saw the first two, actually, and I was telling my nephew, I sat here and watched Jurassic Park when it came out. And I remember we went the night before it was released. Like, it was pretty cool. My mom would find that in the paper a lot. Like, I remember going to Terminator 2 the night before it came out and, like, Total Recall. So, like, our town was doing that, like, back in the 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, it was, uh, it was really cool. It was, like, almost like a sneak preview. I loved it, of course. Like, that first movie's great. Now, there was a time in my life where I <laughs> didn't like Jurassic Park 1. I guess you could say during sort of like a snobbish phase of my <laughs> film life where I just thought it was just like an effects reel. Like, this is just not a movie. It's just, you know, Flash or something. Which, I mean, to be fair, pretty much all of the movies kind of are. They're just like these like vignettes of terror kind of loosely strung together with a not that great storyline. You know, even the first one, which is so captivating and so good, it's like... Yes, I agree. It's the strongest of all of them, and it's still a B-movie. Yeah. Like, uh, it's just that it's Spielberg behind the scenes and the innovation of effects, just much like what he did with the script of Jaws. It's just mm -hmm. whatever, you know, he found a way to really make it work. I think Jurassic Park 2 is now what I thought of Jurassic Park 1, <laughs> where it's just a mess. I rewatched it, and it was tough. I checked the watch, and I was like, whoa, there was an hour and a half left? <laughs> yeah, right. 
this one I remember seeing I think I've only seen this one about twice I saw it in theaters and then I've seen bits and pieces on TV but really just to see it from end to end was uh, for this podcast and I guess I should mention now like I did a super deep dive I dug like a paleontologist for this episode <laughs> I read several books which we'll get into for the book club I watched all the movies I even went back and watched two cuts of the original story The Lost World wow. from 1925 and the one from 1960 like I went crazy changed my twitter handle to jurassic mike like i <laughs> i don't intend to go this far with the rest of the shows but for some reason i was just like really getting into the spirit of this and as far as this one goes you know to show my hand a little bit i'll agree with kara like i don't think this is a especially good film but i like it like i think it's kind of fun and it's definitely a step up from two yeah right right and sort of the reason the new one Jurassic World is sort of forgettable is that it's grandiose and huge and for me Jurassic Park works best when it's small and intimate and you know you just have a few people in peril mm -hmm. as opposed to like widespread mania or panic. Rewatching it this time I actually got into it more than I was expecting and we're about to get into the specifics but yeah it's not without its problems. Mike did you read any reviews or anything or Kara did you from when the movie came out? No. No. My memory is that people were when this movie came out they were there was like a sort of lot of cautious optimism about how they enjoyed it. That that in my mind it was always the idea that oh you know make another Jurassic Park and then it came out and people were like actually they got some things right that like two kind of <laughs> kind of slipped up on but i didn't know if that was just in my in my mind or if that was actually if that was true if i just made that my brain just made that up the only thing i knew was that spielberg isn't coming back that we have someone who at the time i wasn't aware of but know very well now we have joe johnston directing this movie he was like a big guy at ILM for a long time. He worked on all the Star Wars movies. He was a, a sequence designer, like a special sequence designer. Like he would design action sequences, work with models and effects, and he designed sequences for Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, <gasps> The Rocketeer. The first the first Jumanji, right? Didn't he do the first Jumanji? Jumanji 1, yeah, and the first Captain America, the first Avenger. Right, that's right. He is sort of this effects wizard really is kind of i'm a little underwhelmed by <laughs> by what happened here you know because of the effects in this film yeah you know that's a sort of a good jumping on point is just like the look of this you know i know we're three films in but you can feel the sort of um like the uh quality has dropped a bit here we don't we don't quite have as much money as we did for the last two movies yeah and i think there's just like less dinosaurs in this one like, we see them less. I might be wrong about that, but... Yeah, I had that same experience. It felt to me like because of the way the story was structured and who we were following mm -hmm. in the story, they kind of saved the moment where everybody looks up in awe at the dinosaurs to the second to last sequence in the movie, which, you know, I think you could make that work. But it, the effect, I think, is that the dinosaurs don't seem to have, and maybe they couldn't, right? Maybe this far after the first Jurassic Park, you couldn't have that moment where your, your sort of hair kind of stands on end as, you, as they see the dinosaurs and you see the dinosaurs and we all go, oh my God, they're dinosaurs. But yeah, I felt that like there was a, I guess what I'm trying to say is I wonder if there really aren't as many dinosaurs or if it just kind of feels that way because the characters are reacting differently yeah i agree the awe factor is just gone at this point you know it can't be i guess about the dinosaurs at this point 
it's just unfortunate that the first movies, not just the computer effects, but the models and stuff, that the first movie still looks better than the second and mm -hmm. third movie is sort of a strange testament to quality control, I suppose. What do you guys make of this opening <laughs> sequence of the dinosaur hand gliding cold open that we have going on here? I wrote down that those green mountains that they're looking at are very beautiful, <laughs> which I feel like is adjacent to your favorite comment of the cinematography was good. What is up with this opening? Like, it is kind of jarring, to be quite honest, even now knowing that this was the opening. And I know the first movie opens with they're trying to get the raptor in its cage and the guy gets eaten. Second movie opens with vacationing snobs on the beach and the little girl gets attacked. So they all sort of have a history of, of this, like, cold open, but none of them ever really dealt with who's going to end up being sort of like a main character or like a main plot point. But here we're like introduced to this kid, Eric, who is on vacation with his mom's boyfriend doing this power sailing, hand gliding tour of, this is the second island, Ilsa Sorna, Site B. So this isn't the one from the first movie, but this is supposed to be the island from the second movie. And then like this killer fog rolls in. <laughs> What's up with that? Like I was expecting there to be a dinosaur in the water. Right. We don't even get a hint of that or anything. I have my notes. The The first note is like, who who is this kid and his dad? Who, it's like, it seems like his dad. We, we know, you know, absolutely nothing about them. And I don't think we need a big scene or anything. But like, even in the dialogue they have with one another, there's nothing that makes them at all distinct in some way. I, and, and maybe, again, maybe it doesn't need to be. Maybe, look, Joe Johnson is or this movie is is kind of workmanlike like it's it's sort of hitting all the beats and some of them work better than others but there's no there's nothing sort of underneath i don't feel a lot underneath that at all and i feel like someone like spielberg couldn't help but and I say that, of course, he he made he botched it in number two, but that there, there would be something, a look between these two guys. Like, is there something that, that makes us understand a little bit more about who they are that I think I would have cared a little bit more? I, I don't know. Also, I'm, I'm a little unclear looking back what attacked that boat, like the boat that's pulling their, their parasail thing. Like, what what was that? Yeah, I just like assumed it was some sort of unseen dinosaur, but... That was only because I knew I was watching a Jurassic Park movie, not because there are any sort of like context clues. Right. <laughs> There's no precedent set for a water dinosaur of any kind. It would have been great to introduce one of the flying dinosaurs at this point because they become like a big thing later on. Just have one swoop down and, and take the guy out. But it, it literally, this time watching it, felt like a cloud of like acid rolled <laughs> like over the boat and disintegrated the driver because right. it's there and then he's not. I do like that they've incorporated the idea of like adventure vacationing, you know, like people are going to like do this dinosaur thing and fly near the island with dinosaurs. I appreciate that. That's kind of a smart thought, I think. But I, yeah, it didn't, it didn't land with me at all. Yeah, that feels like an attraction they would have had at Jurassic Park, mm. where you're soaring with right. the dinosaur. Yeah, but you're right. There is absolutely no relationship introduced here between these two. They could be brothers. They could be <laughs> nephew and uncle. To even find out when we do that they're not even a stepdad and stepson, but that it's his mom's boyfriend is going to be very strange. Yeah, and she doesn't seem too upset when he's <laughs> when she discovers he's dispatched. I yeah. So I guess yeah. Who knows? After they sort of like soar to the island, we cut to a little kid playing with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Little kids are a big part of Jurassic Park. I, I kind of expected this, that they were going to sort of try and target even younger people. <laughs> but you can never start them too young, I guess. What do you guys make of this scene 
where we're introduced to Dr. Grant. Welcome back, Dr. Grant. Yay. Missed you from the second movie. But Dr. Grant and Ellie. Yes. I feel like this is going to be most of the podcast, this scene. What makes you say that? <laughs> where to start? In the book, Dr. Grant and Ellie do not have a romantic relationship whatsoever. It's made pretty clear. At one point, I'll get to in book club, but Dr. Grant in the book is in fact a widower. His wife has passed away, and he does not have any interest in Ellie, but he is interested in, like, kids and stuff like that. I mean, not that sounded bad. <laughs> uh, but he is interested in parenting and that kind of thing and being a role model and stuff, unlike the movie where him and Ellie are romantically linked, and he's sort of like the curmudgeon-y, I don't want to have children kind of guy. It's a very different character from book to screen. This is weird to me. It makes sense if it's book continuity, but it makes no sense for film continuity. The implication that they're together? Well, the fact that in the movie here that that's not their son, that the reveal of the scene is that Alan and Ellie didn't get together right. and this is not his kid and that like that kid's dad's going to be home any moment. And presumably Dr. Grant was not at the wedding because this is the first time he's meeting <laughs> Ellie's husband. Like what is happening in this scene? I don't know. I was just excited to see Laura Dern yes. again because I had not looked at the IMDb page for the movie yet. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my goodness, she's back. I thought she would be, but then it turns out she's not really. But yeah, I actually didn't take much away from that scene either. <laughs> Pretty much all of the expositional scenes in this movie, with the exception of when they're on the dig, um, I just kind of wasn't paying attention to. My adoration for Laura Dern, as anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, runs runs deep and true. And coming from that first Jurassic Park, which hit me at just the right time, I had forgotten she was in this too, actually, until her scene shows up. And I, and I think, oh, yay. And every movie, every scene in any movie with Laura Dern in it is better than most of the other scenes in the movie. So I'm, I'm just excited to see to see her. And to, and then I real, you sort of realize what the movie has done to her as a, as a character. I guess she's mm -hmm. a writer, right? Like she talks about her, she's got an editor or something, but it's sort of shuffled. Like the movie has interesting and maybe not interesting. The movie has, to my mind, kind of disappointing thoughts about domesticity and family and parenting and women's roles. And like she, in the first movie, she's like, you know, she's the one sticking her arm in the big pile of poop, right? Like she's the one, look at, she's a paleobotanist and she's like uh, got her, you know, her hair pulled back and she's like getting in messy. And, and now she's like, I know she's not a like, stay-at-home, which is fine. People could be stay-at-home moms. But it, it feels like an odd thing to have done to her character. Now, if the argument is going to be that she is so traumatized by the first movie that, that she would never go near dinosaurs again, I totally get that. But she doesn't seem traumatized. She seems, like, perfectly content. And I don't know. I, I, I find that part of it a little disappointing. That she feels more like a plot point on Grant's arc than having anything to do uh, on her own. Yeah. Although it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> like the you know yeah. the female character from the first movie is used as a plot device in the third it's unfortunate she's basically here so that like she tells him you can call me anytime and then he literally calls her <laughs> for rescue at the very end of the movie like that's why she that's why that's why the scene's here right right that's why the scene's here, and that's what bothers me. It's like it's not for them to catch up or to, you know, reconnect or any of that. That's all, like, whatever, whoever wrote this, he doesn't care about that. He just cares about getting out of the scene with that setup. So that's what bugs me is that they've retconned her, 
in ways that take her out of the film because we're still going to get a short-haired blonde woman running around in the jungle. Like, why can't it be her? Because Julianne Moore is in the second one. I would have liked to see her again. Yes, that feels. She feels way more like the right, other character. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's upsetting because of how cool she was in that first yeah. movie. Like, she's a badass, so that stinks. <laughs> she's not along for the ride. Like, we kind of came into contact with this with Alien 3. It's like, oh, remember Newton Hicks? Well, they're gone. Onward with Ripley. Have you found in looking at these other number threes, does it have anything to do with how much time has passed between the subsequent movies? Or does it just seem to be something that happens with, with the number three? The only one that's really stayed in continuity has been Rocky and Alien. I I feel like Rocky knew where it wanted to go and Alien had no clue and they were just sort of like panicked to make that movie. There's a great documentary, like the making of that film is like 10 times better than the movie (laughs) in my opinion. For the most part, time really is negligible, I'd say. Like, especially in this movie, I don't get the sense of how long it's really been since they've been off the island except for her kids. But she's got like a two-year-old. So I assume they got back from the island they split up. I'm more of the speed theory where a traumatic, life-threatening event will draw two people closer together rather than draw them apart. Well, usually with trauma bonding, it's like a short period of time, and then it it ultimately does drive them apart, which is true of the speed franchise as well. (laughs) I hope they get the part three. I'd have reason to watch part two. I would definitely be on that one, but only if Sandy comes back. Did you guys see who did? Who is credited with writing this one? The three credited writers, one is a, a writing team that is more known for making their own movies. Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, who they wrote together, and then Alexander Payne directed things like Election and Sideways and About Schmidt. They did a rewrite on this movie after Peter Buckman, I guess is how you say his name, who's the guy who wrote the Che movies for Soderbergh. Whoa. Yeah. So it's we it's a whole weird my memory so Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor came to this movie came out when I was in film school and they came to talk to us about a I think Sideways was coming out and they came in and talked to us and somebody asked some questions about this and they both really shook their heads about having <laughs> having worked on this movie and talked about it as a as a bit of a money as a money gig and a thing they wouldn't do again and that that it was my sense is this this went through a lot of writers who are not credited to kind of cobble this this thing together since they had made Citizen Ruth with Laura Dern and Laura Dern had been in October Sky which was a Joe Johnson movie with Jake Gyllenhaal which is she's wonderful in that I wonder if there's I don't know how that came up but it feels a little bit like those scenes are kind of tacked on don't you think like somebody said hey let's get Laura Dern and like hey we know Laura Dern and let's write Laura Dern a couple scenes put her on you know in the beginning of the movie the end of the movie she can shoot for a day and I I just hope she made a bunch of money I could see that happening. I mean, the, I was looking at some of the stuff on the Wikipedia page, and I noticed that it said something like they had spent $18 million in getting this movie ready, building sets on scripts and stuff, and then they Joe Johnston and Spielberg threw the script out at the last minute and rewrote everything wow. from square one. So there was sort of trouble throughout this whole thing as to making up their minds of what they wanted to do. It feels that way, I think, yeah. It's interesting. When we get to the book club part, they sort of found room to stretch their wings, I guess, with the rest of their ideas and some of the novelization stuff. We'll get there. 
So the next major thing that happens in this movie is Dr. Grant's speech. Dr. Grant needs a grant to keep his <laughs> dig site open. He's giving the speech, but he's like giving it at a university, it seems, to students. And then at the end, he's like asking for money. And, it, and I know it didn't happen, but in my mind, the entire audience changed from students <laughs> to like executives. Uh, it's actually just uh, he's on an episode of Shark Tank. <laughs> I feel so bad for this guy. Like, there's no way I feel like he would be this down, like sink this low. I feel like he'd be getting his funding, no problem. I I don't know. This was yeah. a little strange to me. And then maybe it's his madcap idea that raptors can talk, keeping him from getting his cash. But that's what they're setting up here is the idea that, that Dr. Grant thinks that the social structures of dinosaurs are way more complex than we'd ever imagined and that it's quite possible that raptors can talk to each other. And if the catastrophic event that killed all the dinosaurs hadn't happened, quote, raptors could have become the dominant life form on this planet, to which I wrote down, that's what they call foreshadowing. <laughs> I wrote down Super Mario Brothers, the movie, question mark, because in that movie, there is a parallel Earth where people evolved from dinosaurs, and that's where the Mario Brothers go to fight <laughs> Koopa and rescue the princess. <laughs> I was listening to another podcast about Jurassic Park sometime in the last year or two and somebody who had done I wish I could remember what it was somebody who'd done a lot of research into Jurassic Park had talked about there was a script for I don't know if it was a, the original one for number two or an original one for number three that had to do with the dinosaurs like the raptors being trained by like bred with humans to be like military apparently there was a script circulating for Jurassic World oh that's what it was okay plot elements made it in with Vincent D'Onofrio having Star-Lord train the raptors and stuff and, and everything oh Okay, right, right. That's what it was. Okay, so I'd move that in the timeline back to before this one because when I heard Dr. Grant's thing there about the like like Carol was saying about the life form, dominant life form, I'm like, oh, this is maybe like a like a vestigial you know bit of that. But I guess or maybe I guess maybe it was a precursor. <laughs> I had the sense of some executive somewhere saying, God, I got to turn these dinosaurs into you know into commandos. Well, there's a few things that were originally intended for the first or second movie that they didn't use that wound up making it into this movie. I don't remember what they are, but I do remember reading that. Yeah, like all the stuff with the uh, pteranodon or the pterodactyls, all the uh, all the power sailing stuff, the hand gliding mm -hmm. stuff, that was all going to be at the end of part two and Spielberg's like, nah, I want the T-Rex to come to San Diego and sort of rampage through the city a little bit and they're like, uh, we were going to save that for part three. He's like, well, I might not direct part three, so I want to do it in my movie. <laughs> oh, jeez. It's unfortunate, like a lot of things throughout the making of all three movies sort of got shifted around and I actually have like a, a list of like what they took from what books for which movies basically for this movie there's not very much left over to sort of like pick from the book the aviary sequence is from the first book the military rescuing them at the end from the beach is in the first book the river ride is in the first book the subject of divorce is in all the books and all the movies I don't understand what is going on with Crichton and Spielberg but they really got a jonesing for divorce in this franchise hey it was the 90s Divorce was big in the 90s. 
did you guys see that the HBO documentary about Spielberg? No. Because he talks, they, they talk about divorce in that, like very explicitly. His mom talks about it and his like, sisters are talking about how, and even he talks about how impactful that was in his early life. And he, he's pretty clear about where that comes from for him. And and th- these movies do seem to be, there's so much about like um, reuniting the nuclear family. Like that does seem to be a theme here. I don't know what it has to do with dinosaurs, but... And there's sort of like a coming-of-age quality to, like, facing your fears as a kid and getting over, like, childish things, I suppose. Taking care of yourself, survival. Right, right, right. The stuff from the second book that made it into this movie, people from InGen come to the island to steal the eggs, and in this one, Grant's assistant Billy will steal some eggs. Mm-hmm. In this movie, they will hide in a dino cage, which is sort of like a shark cage, and, and in the second book, one of the kids gets stuck in one of those, and like raptors kind of kick it around the island for a while, and then like all the power sailing stuff was supposed to be in the last movie and uh, wound up here. Like They cannibalize it. Uh-huh, right. They sort of mix and match what they wanted to do, and the last one just spent so many ideas i feel like there wasn't that much left for this movie but we got the idea of talking raptors i think that the from the script point of view the one of the big fundamental flaws in this movie is that grant gives in like he says i'm never going back to to another a dino island and then they're like hey i'll write you a check and he's like okay cool <laughs> i'm gonna go like he gives in so easily and i and i and i think that if you work backwards from that you get the scene with the the confusing scene where he's asking for money and you know which is which is also the the reason they get him to go in the to the first Jurassic Park it does not feel like an evolution at all it doesn't feel like a step forward it feels like a retread that I, I don't I just don't buy it and I think that the movie suffers from that because I'm not invested in whether he gets his money or not you know and then the movie doesn't seem to be either as it gets you know as it moves along so it, feel, it ends up feeling more like a an artificial device to me well, it's no wonder he needs so much money because in the scene where they're at his dig site in Montana, they actually have a 3D printer there, which is crazy. I mean, this was <laughs> yeah. made in, what, 2000? And they have this, like, 3D printer that's able to prototype this, like, dinosaur sinuses. That's wild. <laughs> and, and he calls it something crazy, too. I wrote it down. But I think he calls it a rapid prototyper. Yeah, which is another word for 3D printer. Yeah, right. And I remember watching this in the movie theater going like, that's bullshit. (laughs) That's never going to exist. And like, I have a friend with a 3D printer like in his living room. Yeah. You're right, Kara. Like they're just, and you're right too, Tobin. I mean, this is a total retread. They just square one for Dr. Grant. Like in the first movie, he was asking for money and they were spending too much on equipment. Like they had that thing where they shot something into the earth and you could see the whole dinosaur bone. And in this one, they're wasting it on 3D printers to print a raptor resonating cranial chamber. Which are sinuses. (laughs) I don't understand why they don't just call it raptor sinus. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just own it, because I'll go with talking dinosaurs. I don't give a shit. Sure. Sure, sure. If you're going to own it, then I'm going to buy it. But they're dancing around it, you know? They don't want to... It feels like they don't want to sink to that level, and it's like, no, it's not sinking. It's sort of like trying to rise above, and like, don't take yourself so seriously anymore, Jurassic Park. I feel like that's a little bit of an issue in this Mm -hmm. one, is... They don't want to stray too far from, dare I say, like reality. But they don't do a great job at like executing the real parts of reality. Because (laughs) 
on that dig. I don't know who the actor is, but he looks like Bradley Cooper. He and this woman are like on the ground and she's like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. <laughs> yes, yes. And so he comes over to like mansplain to her yes. about how to dust the dinosaur bones. And I'm like, you're right. None of you are doing this right. Cause he lays down on top of the dinosaur <laughs> bones, which is not how you're supposed to do any of this. That guy, Alessandro Navola, by the way, is Pollux Troy from yes. Face Off is the only ah. other thing I know him from. So Yeah. The other thing he explains to her is what fossils are. <laughs> like <laughs> which I mean I, I understand someone along the line said, Let's explain it so the audience knows. And so okay, because nobody knows what a fossil is. But it comes off your I wrote mansplaining too. Like what like is this just some is this is this woman who got off at the wrong stop on the bus and came over here and is like oh what's this I'm gonna dig dinosaurs and then like he has to explain what a fossil is it just that bugged me so much and it's weird that they want to sort of do everything the same again but they're not going to give him another female assistant like they give him this Billy guy mm -hmm. like it's the opposite of Laura Dern you know like he's a chauvinistic loser instead of like some cool progressive person <laughs> it's kind of a bummer and like I'm also kind of bummed that this isn't Timmy the character Timmy oh. or, you know because like <laughs> yeah. that would have made sense you know it doesn't have to be the same actor but I'm just dying for them to bring that kid back <laughs> I feel like him and Dr. Graham bonded yeah it feels like they're just just trying to give they're trying to build up the sort of father-son thing since the main father-son story is not between grant and anybody anybody else they have to give him a son which it feels again like they're working backwards from from an idea they had rather than sort of drawing something out of his character out of the story I almost say let him go it alone. Totally. He doesn't need help. He's Dr. Grant. I feel like he's a he's badass. Like he's almost like a modern Indiana Jones in a lot of ways. Like rewatching the first movie, I was like really into his character. He doesn't showboat, he's not full of himself, like but he's super smart <laughs> and he knows how to get his opinion in without really sounding like a know it all or anything. And I feel like just no one really has a good understanding of who he is to write him well enough at this point. Speaking of father-son bonds and parents in general, this is where we meet the Kirbys. Finally, these are the real parents of the kid from the very beginning of the movie. We're finally trying to start to tie these threads together. But William H. Macy and Taya Leone, who I do not buy whatsoever. <laughs> oh, you mean you don't you don't buy William H. Macy action star? I get a little more on his side by the end of the movie. Yeah, he grows into it. But he is in full Flanders mode. <laughs> I just can't yes. get Flanders out of my mind. Oh my goodness, yes. Wow. They come to Dr. Grant and they're like, oh, we're really rich assholes that like to climb Mount Everest and like we got a trip to the moon and stuff. Like, <laughs> I'm going to hire you for a dino tour. And Dr. Grant's like, no, like, what are you, crazy? And that's when, like Tobin said, he just caves so quickly. Also, this this can't be the this can't be the first time some rich asshole has come to him and said, "Hey, I want to go look at dinosaurs." Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I again, and I don't want to look. I, this this is not. I'm, I'm harping a lot on the script here just because it, there's so much to harp on. But I, which is not to say I didn't enjoy the movie. But like, but it doesn't make any sense for sure. That's what's weird about it. I accept it 
for some weird reason, just because I want to get back to Jurassic Park, the I, I want I want to be on the island with right, Dr. Right, Grant. Right. Like, I want to see him running around there again. So, like, I'm just saying to the movie, okay, all right. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. You're really pushing it, but I'm with you. Just get me to that island, and then we can move this along. Yeah, I feel like it, it takes them forever to get to the island. Mm. Like, from the start of the movie, there's all of these different different exposition happening in all of these different places and none of it's really like that important and it just takes forever to actually like get back there the nice thing is though that it's all the exposition is done with now Mm. this is what the movie (laughs) is about now we're gonna get to the island and try and find this kid and when we do we're just gonna leave it like that is it's like the MacGuffin factor now which I kind of appreciate once I wish they could have just done that a lot sooner. I just, I wish that what we come to find out about these people isn't like a beat that we needed. Like, I don't understand why William H. Macy and Tay Leone needed to feel like they had to lie to Dr. Grant, because I feel like he would have been more willing to go if he knew the truth, as opposed to being on a plane with like a bunch of mercenaries out of nowhere. Yeah, it, it is a relief when we're past all this. I, I totally, totally agree. Like, let's let's get to the island, right? There's this very strange cut when Dr. Grant is sort of on the plane and he's like, hey, you see that dinosaur? You see this dinosaur? And no one's paying any attention to him. And then, like, he's trying to get Willie Mace Macy's attention and some guy, like, knocks him out and he just sort of, like, blacks out and like the screen goes black and it's just like in Fight Club where like the movie keeps going and the audience has no idea. (laughs) It just feels low budget. It feels rushed. I'm not trying to blame anybody. Like these things happen and it's still better than a lot of movies under the circumstances. But it's filled with all of these weird little moments that my brain is just going like, huh. Yeah, especially as you say, because what we're and and maybe it's it's they're they're trying to get us faster to the to the to the dinosaurs. Maybe that's part of what it is. I don't know, but yeah, it's odd. There are a lot of those odd little. I, again, I, it feels to me like. Joe Johnston is somebody who he can put a movie together and and some of them work pretty well or they 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 work all right but there's no elegance to it there's no there's no sort nothing there's no finesse to it you look at Spielberg the way he cuts shots together even in a movie that doesn't work in the way that the second movie does but like shot to shot he he has such a he speaks film in such a fundamental way and Joe Johnston so often feels like he if the script is not good he's not going to make it any better yeah, because you look at, like, Captain America or The Rocketeer or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like, those movies just are solid. And here we have our first massive attack. They bring all these mercenaries to the island, and then, like, they instantly get wiped out by the Spinosaurus. This is my son's favorite dinosaur. He's never seen any Jurassic Park movie, but this is a big dinosaur among kindergartners right now. <laughs> That's all I really have to say. <laughs> well, the Spinosaurus was the largest animatronic ever built at that oh, time. Wow. It weighed 12 tons <gasps> and was operated by hydraulics, which allowed it to operate while completely submerged in water. So that's cool. Wow, that is cool. And it, it's true that they, they ate fish. Their diet was mostly fish. But my understanding is they didn't swim. So I, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> that's very cool. It was the biggest the biggest to date. I wonder if anything's been bigger since then. What, what it would have been. Yeah. I don't think so. I can't Probably imagine not. it, right? Like they would, they didn't, would they do any big animatronics for Jurassic World? I guess that might be the only other thing maybe, yeah? I don't know if they built a uh, Indominus Rex. <laughs> right. I wasn't aware that this was a real dinosaur when I saw the movie because it doesn't look like a real dinosaur. <laughs> like it looks like what I want more of from this, which is like genetic freak dinosaurs. 
Yeah, 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 totally. Where's the two-headed T-Rex? Where is the raptor with four legs or two tails or whatever, three eyes, six eyes? Like, I really thought when the dinosaurs were going to show up, they were going to be weirder. But I do like how he takes out the T-Rex and he's just like, we're beyond you now. The T-Rex has nothing on me. It's a point I don't think they can follow up necessarily for the rest of the film, saying that this one's bigger, badder, and more vicious than the previous ones. But it's a nice sentiment. It's a nice try. You can't just have T-Rex again. That's the problem with Jurassic World is Indominus is like, they mentioned that he's made of this and that and the other thing, but he still just looks too much like a real like dinosaur. Like, I just need him to be freakier. That would have been cooler. And... and... Again, as you as you were saying, Mike, it feels like the, the movie's not embracing its schlockiness. Like like you've done wonder with the first movie, wonder and horror, but like you've you've you can't get back the magic of seeing these dinosaurs for the first time. Like done this well, and you know, like seeing that that scene in the in the theater, the you know, you can't get that back anymore. So, but you're totally right. What Kara was saying too about the, how they're not they're doing the real parts well either like so what you're left with is neither the sort of coherent story or a more schlocky movie and i i I also kind of wish it had gone well one of those two directions but schlocky they if they didn't embrace that more that could have been cool yeah i agree really could have gone more onto the horror end of the spectrum too not just jump scares but even with the gore yeah, there wasn't a lot of gore, but there was a really good. There's a great parachute skeleton. Oh that yeah, they found yeah, right. When they were looking for the kid, and they find the, I guess his mom's boyfriend. That's his skeleton. That was a good one. That was that was a good jump scare. Yeah, you're right. And she freaks <laughs> the hell out. Taya Leone comes alive in that scene, which is like the only time that she's alive in the movie. <laughs> But that's not her fault. I don't know if this was an intended callback, but their plane gets stuck in a tree like the car was stuck in a tree in the first movie. Mm. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I was thinking about Lost when that happened because it's this was also shot in Hawaii. So like I kept actually thinking about Lost kind of the whole time I was watching this and just being like, I wish I was watching Lost instead. <laughs> that, the pilot to Lost is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's Carnage, Carnage, Carnage. We were down to five people. Grant, Paul Kirby, Amanda Kirby, Billy, and then this freaking guy, Udesky. The choice to keep him alive is so bizarre. I am baffled by that. I don't get the actor. I don't get the character. He's just Dino Chow. Yeah. The raptors show up. Dr. Grant doesn't know it, but Billy took an egg. Two eggs. And that's why they're going to pursue them across the island, not because they're vicious killer hunters who are hungry, but because they're parents who want their babies back. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, it, look, this is the, the re-imposition of this some kind of theme of parents and children and reuniting the family and mm. all that stuff that we're seeing again. It's just that it doesn't it doesn't come out of the to me. It feels like it's added on rather than drawn out of the story at all. Yeah. Well, because I think they needed because the Raptors had been such a popular and like successful part of the previous two films i think they were just trying to figure out like well we got to get the raptors in here because otherwise no one's gonna want to like watch this so how do we shoehorn in a storyline about the raptors yeah they sort of became the star they got their own basketball team you know <laughs> they became a french you know what i'm saying they're yeah. the toronto raptors it was like you know the mighty ducks and everything like it just they clicked i feel and they are pretty cool i think a major problem about this whole like parent subplot thing is that eric rescues Dr. Grant. But my point is, I feel like 
he should have rescued his parents or something. Like, his parents should have found him. It's a little weird that Dr. Grant is the one to connect with Eric when he reemerges as sort of like Tarzan or like Mob Mobley. Or, uh, <laughs> right. he's, he's gone feral. He's like Jungle Boy now. Wouldn't that have been a cooler movie? Like, let's stick with yeah. the kid and see how the kid survives on this island. And Oh, yeah. Right? That would have been awesome. Yeah. Like Hatchet. But right. With totally. Totally. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Not to spoil the book club, there are actually several Jurassic Park Adventure Junior novels Ooh. that are like spun from Jurassic Park 3. And one of them, it's called Survivor, and it's about Eric's eight weeks alone on Site B in Jurassic Park trying to survive. Yeah, I would read that. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> I have coverage of it. Oh, good. Okay, good, good. Why don't I just go through it now? Yeah, tell us. Yeah. So it starts with a scene on Ben's yacht where they surprise him with the gift of the dinosaur gift. Then it skips right to the beach after they've landed and Ben has died in front of Eric's eyes. Like, he's dead. Like, he died. And then Eric makes it to the beach and he's chased by a T-Rex. He makes it to the trees and he follows some sloths to a banana grove <laughs> and eats and falls asleep there. Then he slides down a Brachiosaurus's neck. He finds the main laboratory and gets, like, a bunch of supplies, can't turn on the generator, and starts to go stir-crazy. Raptors get in, and he starts reading about, like, all kind of in-gen stuff, and he finds out that the animals were made bigger. They're, like, too big. Like, the mm. raptors are bigger than they're supposed to be. Pterodactyls are bigger than... Like, everything is too big. That's actually really interesting because, at least in the first movie, I don't know about in the second and third, but this is probably also true. They actually did inflate the size of the dinosaurs. Like, raptors actually weren't as large as they appear in the film. Right. I think the T-Rex actually is not really as large either. It's funny, there's a lot of sort of retconning in the book. Oh, he finds Dr. Grant's book at Jurassic Park, like in an office, and he reads it like three times while he's there. He finds rollerblades, and there's like a rollerblade chase with raptors <laughs> through the facility. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I can't believe that didn't make it into the movie. I know! <laughs> Where were his rollerblades? Where did he leave those? He finds a map to a safe house that turns out to be like a, a bunker that he stays in for like a week and he starts to go like even more crazy. Then he goes to like another bunker where he thinks there's going to be lots of food and stuff, but it takes him like a while because like uh, a bunch of raptors have surrounded like a whole herd of these other dinosaurs and they're just like waiting to sort of feed on him and they're standing like on the hatch that he needs to get in. So he needs to make like this whole distraction <laughs> to get into the hatch. So he like pretends to be a raptor and like runs toward the herd and it's crazy. Wow. He gets into the safe house and he almost gets locked in there and dies. <laughs> That's where he gets all of, like his gas grenades and like his weapons and his gear and his helmet and like his goggles and everything like that. He actually fights a raptor like with a shock collar and or like one of those shockers and like he makes a shield out of stuff and and then eventually he makes it to like that bus I guess or wherever that he takes Dr. Grant back to. Like the book ends with him sensing he hears somebody and he sees Dr. Grant and he's about to spring into action and that's and that's where the book ends. So that could have been the movie. Yeah. Totally. The Adventures of Eric. And how cool would it have been if the movie like we don't know going in that Grant is in the movie at all and then it just ends with him being there and like say mm. and then it just ends and then we'd all be like, Oh my god, make number four. <laughs> we want to see it then, right? <laughs> like let's take them off this island. I love that. I love that idea. You could still have the movie from where he connects with the adults. Sure. Yeah. 
just have everything up to that point be him by himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll explain a little more about that book when I get to book club at the end there. But like, I I was waiting for us to get to this moment because I had a feeling someone was going to say like, Eric is the real Jurassic Park three story here because the rest of this movie is just so by the book. Yeah, right. We're going to get two and a half action sequences and then they get rescued. They go through the aviary, which they don't know is the aviary. Like they're just kind of walking through something. That's a nice reveal. I like that reveal. I think this whole sequence works. I think this is something they had a lot of time to plan. I think it might have been something that's held over from the previous movies. I think even from the first movie, there was talk about getting this in there because this is a sequence from the first book. And I think it works, actually. I think I'm actually excited during this part where it picks up the boy and then Billy tries to redeem himself. We think he dies and we're happy for a couple (laughs) minutes. Yeah, he sucks. At least these birds look cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is this sequence working for you guys? Sure. Yeah, and I I had that same the feeling of like noticing my pulse quickening a little bit, which had I realized then had not happened for most of the pre- previous however long since Laura Dern had been on screen, and and so if I agree, I think this is the the best, and this is the stuff. There, there's something that Joe Johnston is, is doing well here. And maybe it is that they're working from plans that they had from movie one. But but there's there's good stuff. There's good stuff when it's revealed what it is and that it and that it's there. And it's this is something new too, right? Like I think maybe they thought that the Spinosaurus was cool because it was big and different and it and it dispatched the T-Rex so quickly. But this is the stuff I come to Jurassic Park movies wanting to see. People running in terror from dinosaurs and dinosaurs that I have not seen in a Jurassic Park movie before that can do cool new things which is why it's smart that this is that we have the flying ones here and it is a smart thing that we'll get those the swimming ones in in number four like that i i think that they were wise to sort of find something newer and and dr grant has this he has a nice line he says something what it says something like we're in a bird cage this is a bird cage and i i I, yeah I'm, i'm buying this i'm buying this section i think this is good yeah, I think it was about this time, though, that I realized that, like, Laura Dern wasn't coming back. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She showed up at the beginning of the movie, and I'm like, oh, sweet, they're getting the band back together. And they don't get the band back together at all. And so it was sometime around this point where I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> she's not coming back, is she? We're like 10 minutes from the end here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she'll, get, she'll come back for like a shot. <laughs> the action sequences, for me, they're cool to watch, but this is where what Tobin was saying earlier about there just not being sort of, it's all sort of surface. The sort of effect or like the point of these action scenes to me, I feel, is to have Eric's parents show Eric that they care about him by risking their lives. In the birdcage sequence the dad doesn't like he has this whole thing where he's like i could have done what billy did i could have tried i could have died for my son Mm -hmm. and it just it's so flat because none of that real human stuff is working either there's that moment earlier where they're changing and she's like hey did you lose weight and he's like i've been swimming at the y and she's like you can't swim he's like i learned to swim it's like what is that pattern <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when we get this next thing with the river ride thing, with the, when the Spinosaurus comes back, and Dad defeats it with the crane, and then uh, Dr. Grant burns it alive and everything, they're like, oh, it's that Indiana Jones moment where it's like, oh, he's he did it, he saved us by risking his life, like, let's remember how great he was, and then he just like, I'm roam over here, like, I'm alive. <laughs> I'm not even out of breath, I'm totally fine, I don't even look like I've done anything that I just did. He's so calm, it's really weird. Thank God for those swimming lessons at the Y. Yeah, oh, foreshadowing. 
Well, especially whoever his trainer was there, because he swam fast to get all the way behind them. Like they're literally watching where he was, <laughs> and he and he maybe it's a really strong current or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's there's some really and again, like if the movie, the rest of the movie had been a little schlockier and had been in this in this vein a little mm-hmm. bit more, this moment might have been fun. You know, like it might have been. Oh, yeah. ah, look what he did. And then that's also the moment where they uh, they call Ellie. Like uh, they have that sat phone. Oh my god. It's the running gag in the whole movie. The the satellite phone got eaten. This is my favorite part in the whole movie. <laughs> because you hear it ringing, so you think it's this harbinger of doom because you think it's like still inside of a dinosaur, so they get like really freaked out. And then they get closer to the ringing, and then they finally find it, and it's in a literal steaming pile of shit. <laughs> it is the best reveal of the movie. I really enjoyed that. I also really enjoyed this factoid from the trivia section of IMDb that the effects crew used 250 gallons of oatmeal to uh, simulate Spinosaur droppings. Wow. it's a lot of oatmeal. But also major callback from the first movie. Right. Uh-huh. It's Laura Dern's moment, and they've stolen it from her. Or, or you might say that now they have literally put her in the shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's the one calling. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and then he calls, and it's the little boy, and he's watching Barney, which I thought was cute. There, there's another glimmer of where yeah. this movie could have gone, what it should have been. Here, she actually has to star 69 him, I think, right? Which I thought was funny. Yes, right, right. I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about the little kid answering the phone because I was just like, you know, they've used this. I, they've used her as a mother as a reason to, like, keep her out of the action so much so far. And so, like, now, you know, they're calling her. They're trying to reach her and say, like, we have an emergency on our hands. But whoops, she's a mom with a little kid who, like, right. you know, and it. And so that was frustrating to me. Thankfully, like, he does eventually get her the phone. But I was kind of feeling a lot of dread in that moment where like oh god they're they're all gonna die because she went and had some some little kid you know right right that's funny i think instead what they're trying to say is like procreate it'll save your friend's life (laughs) sure you know it's a good thing she had that kid or else she never would have gotten the message right i still can't believe dr grant wasn't at that wedding like how is this the first time (laughs) i i would have imagined he set them up but who knows Guys, I've got like a whole Jurassic Park 3 script going on in my head. Your Jurassic Park 3 is just the wedding. It's like there's no dinosaurs in it. It's just like <laughs> it's a it's a it's a comedy of manners at their wedding. <laughs> I love that idea. Well, whatever you do, whoever the kid is in that movie, because obviously there's always a kid, just don't have him eating a candy bar while they're having a conversation because the continuity errors <laughs> when they're like sitting inside of that truck or that bus or whatever. And he like right after Dr. Grant gets saved by him, he's sitting there and he's eating a crunch bar. And it is like, I couldn't pay attention to what they were talking about because it was so distracting that it's like this really obvious product placement with really poor continuity. And Kara, we're no stranger to poor product placement because there's a shot in Jaws 3 where there's like a Minute Maid orange juice thing next to a Wheaties thing next to like an Elmer's glue. Like, it's crazy. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. All I could think about in that shot, in that scene when he rescued Dr. Grant was how much Sam Neill was coughing. And I just wondered if it was like an actual coughing fit that they couldn't, you know, shoot around or if, you know, the direction was, I need you to literally cough through this entire scene because you just ran through that raptor gasp. 
I couldn't get around that. That was distracting to me. I guess the grand finale here is the encounter with the raptors. They can hear the beach, and they're running to the shore, and the Spinosaurus has been burned alive, and they're going to get rescued, and then they get surrounded by raptors because they want their baby back. They want their babies back. The best thing in this sequence for me is the raptor nuzzling Leone's head. Like, that spoke to a cooler, creepier, darker, stranger movie that this could have been. Like, that there's some yeah. sort of, like, would it, would it be maternal or some kind of sexual or something? I don't know. There was something. Like, I, I, can't, I, I pictured, like, a, like a who's the guy who designed the Aliens? Alien? The H.R. Geiger? Like, I imagine yeah. his versions of the, of the raptors. Like, it opened up a portal in my brain to another version of this movie again that I was like, oh, that could have been really cool. Well, this stuff is like all its own movie. The whole thing about Dr. Grant's Talking Raptors is its own film. Yeah. Why even bother with it? You're just going to set that one scene up where they 3D print the... Sinuses. Thank you, Kara. Yep. Right, thank you. <laughs> Just to use it here. Once or twice throughout the movie, I think he said they're talking to each other or they're communicating. But I am also very intrigued as to why the raptor, the uh, supposedly a female raptor, I don't know how they can tell, but is going up to the only female in their pack. I assume that she thinks that Taya Leone is like the leader of the pack and <laughs> is the one to sort of deal with, I guess, if she's going to deal with any of these humans. But that, you're right, like there's a whole movie to sort of explore dino-human behavioral structure going on that they just gloss over. And I mean, if you go that H.R. Geiger route, there's like this whole Madonna horror paradox thing that you (laughs) explore with that too, which would be interesting. Could we get Ridley Scott to do a (laughs) Jurassic Park movie? It's so weird. Dr. Grant goes into the camera bag to get the eggs out and he packed that raptor sinus it's one of those moments it's like Chekhov's raptor sinus basically (laughs) it's billy's bag though i didn't pick that up i forgot i thought he put them in his bag okay no it's because it's the strap it's his camera bag it's his lens bag for his cameras that that he had which he refers to as his lucky bag which is actually a callback to the second movie because julianne moore's character has a lucky (gasps) backpack in that one wow look at you Yes, but wait, wait. At the end of this, Billy gives Dr. Grant his hat back and goes, my lucky hat. Like, there's too many lucky items. (laughs) That's when I know, like, there are sort of script problems when you don't do, like, a double take. Like, you don't write a second draft and you sort of, you're maybe, things are worded too similarly or you've got one idea here and then repeat it there and you didn't realize it. Too many lucky things. Totally. And then the movie decides it's over. Like, it's just super (laughs) abrupt. Like, we're in the middle of this scene where he's talking to the raptors. Like, it's the movie's, like, thesis, as far as I'm concerned. It's like, Dr. Grant wants to know, will they understand me if I talk to them? And they seem to. Uh, And, like, right when they're going to, like, make meaningful contact, they're chased away by the military. That was kind of awesome, though. Like, the way that they all kind of, like, are storming the beach. And it also was awesome that it was Laura Dern's character who sent them. That, like, I don't know who she knows, but she has somebody's phone number. Yeah. Her husband. Oh, no. Was that her really? husband? Oh, that's disappointing. There's a line. He works He works for the government, though. He's, like, a, um ambassador or something like that. Like, he's got a weird desk job for the government, so. Oh, my God. It can't, it can't just be her? Yeah, right? Well, 
at some point somebody in the movie says like when they're looking for the phone or once they have the phone like don't call the american embassy they're not going to do anything because william h macy supposedly called them and said my son is stuck on uh, dinosaur island okay. and they're like you should never go to dinosaur island but yeah, I mean, as abrupt and cut off as it is, I, I do like that too. I think it's funny. It's like this overwhelming show of force when you call him the Calvary. It's a real America fuck yeah moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now, so there are two, two strange things. Well, there are a number of strange things. Two strange things that I noticed about the ending. One is that some of these Marines in, in one of the shots is, as the camera's craning past them have their faces painted green and black. Like they have the full <laughs> camo and then the face this is a whole other this is a whole, another whole other movie here and then the other thing is that so then they get in the in the helicopter and they're flying away and we see the Billy's alive and you get the lucky hat and all that kind of stuff and then then the pterosaurs are flying too and they're like flying off into and the music is playing the stirring you know Jurassic Park theme and I'm like okay so A the, the pterosaurs probably should have like attacked the chopper and they crashed and they all died and yeah. that, that should have been the end of the movie or at least the last sort of fight of the movie but the other thing is that isn't this actually the ending of Ex Machina? Like, this is a terrifying moment where these dinosaurs are going to spread all over the world and, and destroy us. Like, this is not a moment to, to have the, the heroic music. This is the moment to have, like, the, oh, shit moment, right? Like, and which yeah. could have also been cool. Like, oh, they've gotten out of the cage. Like, we are fucked, you know? But that's not, the movie doesn't play it like that at all. It should have ended on, on like, a dun-dun-dun, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know? I'm not sure if it's in one of the books I read or if it was in the movie. Everything's sort of a blur here at the end. But uh, doesn't one of the Marines say, like, shouldn't we, like, shoot them or something? And Dr. Grant's like, no, let them go. Like, they're just migrating. They just need to find, like, some place to nest. They'll be fine. It's like, dude. That makes no sense for him. Yeah. You're Dr. Alan fucking Grant, dude. You should be like, where are the nukes? You only came with this many military guys. Like, did you just brought the navy? Where the where's the army? You know, where's the right. air force? What? Like, this is not enough. We need to wipe this place off the face of the earth. And instead, he's like, "Oh, life found a way." Well, yeah, I think there's like you said, this is another a whole other movie, and it'll be interesting to listen back to this and see how many actual different movies are in this one movie but in in this version of jurassic park 3 like i think i think dr grant's reaction actually is consistent with his character but there should be a counterpart to him the military guy who's like no we need to blow them all up we and like have that friction between the two of them but he's like the animal guy and he's like no but they're, they're animals and they're just trying to find some place to live and then the military's got guys like my big red button is bigger than yours <laughs> you know there's a cbs show that i watched all of recently called zoo which i think is actually executive produced by Michael Crichton. He has something to do with it. And that explores this kind of idea, not with dinosaurs, but with regular animals who like develop the ability to communicate and coordinate attacks against humans. And it's very satisfying in ways that this movie is not. Yeah, if the arc of Dr. Grant in the first movie, which is the last time we saw him, was sort of the arc of everybody in that movie, is to, is to come around to Ian Malcolm's point of view, to come around to, you know, the idea that this is all a big fucking mistake that is, like, going to kill everything. And then, like, mm -hmm. there is no... This movie has given us no reason to think that 
he has changed his mind about that at all. If this was a schlockier movie, then it would have had the ending I'm describing, maybe, or, you know, like they would have gone for that, maybe. I don't know, like the, the terror, yeah. terror ending. The only other thing I was thinking here at the end, it is, it's somewhat, I mean, maybe it's just me with the, with the callbacks, but at the end of the first movie, they're flying away in a helicopter, and he looks out, and he kind of sees birds, like, flying away, and I kind of get the sense he's thinking to himself, like, one day, like, I'm going to see real dinosaurs flying, and then... Uh, this movie ends in a helicopter with him looking out the window, seeing the actual dinosaurs flying off the island. So whether they planned it or not, probably someone caught that. But I think it kind of gives the movies, like the three films, like this nice sort of like symmetry at the end there as little as possible. I mean, to a certain extent, it's the same movie kind of over and over again. That's the, the sense that I got, you know, watching them in relatively quick succession is just that, like it's... The same movie, just not as good a few times in a row. The premise of Jurassic World is basically, you know, what if part one was happening while the park was actually right. open and they weren't just there to inspect it? Part of the issue is there's just really not that many places you can go anymore with Jurassic Park. Like the first one just does it so well and makes its point so well. Not just that dinosaurs shouldn't be here, but like the comments on theme parks and commercialization and dare I say franchise. The way that a product can just take hold and, you know, become a phenomenon and just integrate itself into everyone's life and just become so common and recognizable like that. From movie to movie, it gets less and less about the commentary. And it's unfortunate because the series is set up in that way to make a larger point. Yeah, I was disappointed to to find that this was not about a theme park just because the Jaws 3 was about a theme park and you know so i this is the only jurassic park movie that isn't about a theme park and i have also watched the first season of westworld between when we watched jaws 3 and this so i was like all right more theme park stuff but alas i did not get there one of the things that the theme park underlines is this fundamental tension between Dinosaurs are really cool, and we want to see dinosaurs. And dinosaurs bringing them back to life is morally and like is morally wrong and like physically wrong, like dangerous to to humanity. It's a bad decision from a practical standpoint and from a moral standpoint. And I and that's what the first movie anyway seems to be arguing, and certainly what Crichton seems to be interested in. Like, of course you would want to see this, and you but and and kids love dinosaurs, and aren't dinosaurs cool? But let's think through the actual implications of what it means to bring these creatures back that went extinct so many millions of years ago. And I think that by taking this out, I'd never thought of this before, but I think that's really smart. It's missing something, taking it out of the theme park. And that it, that maybe that's part of why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These like constructed simulated realities kind of mirror like the playing godness of, of it all. Right, right. Tobin, have you seen Jaws 3 by any chance? I have not. It is great. It's definitely worth a watch. I mean, Kara and I sort of cracked part of its code, I feel, like while we were discussing it in that it is very close to Jurassic Park. It takes place at SeaWorld. Uh, Their new attraction is a great white shark, and it goes around eating people, you know? So uh, there's a lot of parallels and similarities, and I don't know if it knows that it's making that point, but it does it pretty well for what it is at the time. And then, yeah, Westworld, of course, this isn't Michael Crichton's first foray into theme parks gone wild he's got sort of something against them i don't know he's just sort of like really fascinated with them Um, yeah well to me i mean there there's it's one of the things that i found really striking watching westworld was 
how much it was like working for Apple. Like, I think mm. that there is definitely a common string there of like working because yeah, Disney is this huge content creator and of course there's the parks and everything, but they're responsible for some like really important technology, especially during the 20th century, you know, like working for these companies that have these huge billion dollar presences that uh, make these huge advances in technology. They're very often led by some mercurial crazy person, you know, who has these big wild ideas which facilitate all of this, but also come with like a really dark and weird and twisted mm. kind of element. So one of the things that I came across when I was researching the first Jurassic Park when we did it for Wistful Thinking, and I think I said this when we recorded the Jaws 3 episode, is that in making Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg actually said he was just trying to make a really good sequel to Jaws. Huh. Like that he was he was doing this monster movie thing, just like try like trying again to make the, the sequel to Jaws that like never quite made it there. That's the problem, I think, is like with Jaws and with Jurassic Park, like he just knocks it out of the park so hard that there's just no room to explore. Mm -hmm. It's hard to come back from. <laughs> yeah, like Jaws 2 is like Jaws 1 redux. Jaws 3, they finally break away. And Jaws 4 is just that we don't mention Jaws 4 anymore. <laughs> uh, especially after that episode where I read Jaws the Revenge because there was no novelization to Jaws 3. And that was a dark week. <laughs> Unfortunately, they couldn't just embrace what they had left and just go full creature feature monster movie, you know, make this Skull Island. That's what I wanted. That's what I noticed going back and looking at, like, the Lost World movies. Mm -hmm. And those are basically King Kong movies without King Kong. Yeah. Like, they go on this expedition and visit this strange prehistoric land and find all these, you know, incredibly huge creatures. And some of them make it back and some of them don't. Yeah. So I guess we could put Jurassic Park 3 to bed, unless either of you have any final thoughts? I don't think so. No, those are all my notes. I found some of the flora that they used for set dressing unconvincing, but other than that, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, I work for a floral designer. It's one of my many jobs. There's a lot of, like, hanging vines that you see, especially, like, obviously when they're in the jungle, and the way that they have dressed the vines is unnatural they have them like wrapped in this weird moss and then they have it looks like pothos plants which are a pretty common house plant that originate from Papua New Guinea I believe but anyway so they they're these climbing or, or trailing plants but they appear to be growing in a way that they don't actually grow so I found that distracting it's kind of funny that you noticed that, though, because I, they probably just were like, no one's going to notice <laughs> yeah. these are just, right. you know, plants you can get in here, and there's a Jurassic Park. Me, I noticed, 17 years after the movie came out. Well, and it, it, it's a callback to how cool uh, Laura Dern is in the first movie, where, since she's the paleobotanist. Yeah, Laura Dern would have noticed. Yeah, like, you you got to bring, bring back the right plants for them to be able to have the right things to eat, and how do those plants interact in our atmosphere and with our plants? I, she, she, was just, she opened my eyes to so much. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think of that, but you're totally right. Now it's time for Book Club, also now known as Third Time's a Book. <laughs> I'll try and get through this as quickly as possible. You've been more than generous with your time, and we will all be home very soon. For this particular movie, I read... Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton, Lost World by Michael Crichton. I read the junior novelization of Jurassic Park 3. I also read 
two of the three Jurassic Park Adventures books. There's three books, one called Survivor, which I gave the coverage for before, which is Eric surviving on the island alone for eight weeks. There's one called Prey, which I was not able to get my hands on, unfortunately, in time for the show. And then there's one called Flying, which I got on Kindle. So I was able to read that. And that book is interesting because it's like a sequel to Jurassic Park 3. Hmm. Eric has written a book. He is on his way. Now, I got a big (laughs) kick out of this. He's on his way to Universal Studios Orlando to give a speech about his book. He's has like a public appearance and him and Dr. Grant are going to like take questions and give a little presentation about what they what happened to them in the third movie. So like when they get to Orlando theme park, basically what happens is those, you know, pteranodons that flew away, they show up at Universal Studios and basically run amok. Eric is on the Jaws ride with his mom when they attack. Why didn't they make this movie? (laughs) Well, I have a feeling these books were all sort of script ideas Mm. for possible versions of the third movie. They've spun off the third movie into three junior novels that expand the mythology. So you get the Pteranodons versus Jaws. And then, like, Dr. Grant and him team up. There's this tabloid journalist who actually asks Dr. Grant if he heard the rumors about raptor men for the military, which is crazy. So then there's two or three chapters from the dinosaur's point of view, (laughs) like literally the dinosaurs, like not talking, but, you know, I might have to read a bit of that. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. The dinosaurs chase them through the earthquake ride. The dinosaurs chase them through confrontation, the King Kong ride. So you have the dinosaurs and King Kong reach each other. It's crazy. Basically, all the dinosaurs have, like, picked up the people and put them in the lagoon, and they're about to, like, feast on them, so they have to drive them away, and Dr. Grant ends up shooting fireworks at them, and then there's, like, a huge, like, SWAT rescue team. They do end up taking out a helicopter, so it is a little strange that they didn't take out the helicopter at the end of the last movie. But, yeah, basically, Eric and Dr. Grant have to, like, survive Universal Studios during a dinosaur attack. Wow. I will read some dinosaur point of view. Yeah, give us a little of that. Chapter 5. That night, seven winged forms flew over Universal Studios. They were pteranodons, three adults and four young, who had flown away from the island that had been the adults' home and their prison. The elder trailed behind the two other adults, his daughter and her mate. By the pale moonlight, he studied the bright crimson markings along the strong, powerful wings of the flyer who had fought and won the right to be with the elder's daughter. The elder thought of him as fire because he looked like the fiery dawn. Her markings were blue like the waves and gray like the rocky shore. She was flood. The children of fire and flood spread out before their parents as the group soared beneath the clouds. The elder didn't approve of allowing the young ones to fly ahead of their parents, but fire and Flood liked to keep their four children where they could see them. Wow. That was the perfect response. Wow. This is chapter 9 now. The adolescent Pteranodon stalked from one end of the boat to the other. His wings bore two silver streaks like lightning. He hissed and snapped at the frightening keepers clinging to their craft. Oh, so keepers are humans because Uh, they were the ones who kept uh, them in their cage on the mm -hmm. island. They screamed and darted into the water in terror. Lightning's stomach rumbled. Feeding time had been so long ago, and he was hungry. He gave a pleading look to his mother, who circled overhead. She raised her beak and soared off. He knew how things were, and that should have been enough. They didn't know how long they would be in this place, and the food would have to last. All he wanted was a nibble, a morsel. The innards of one or two screaming keepers would do. He'd make them small ones, even. 
Wow. Wow. That's that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. There's two more chapters like that. <laughs> I, w I was going to read about them, you know, like running through Kong and having Kong and Jurassic Park mashing up or, or with Jaws and having Jaws and Jurassic Park mash up. But I, but I think those will do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there is this other book I read, which was there are these series, uh, the Pearson's English Readers. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. which are like English as second language books. So I read one of those. It was like 40 pages. And at the end, it has like all these activities. It was really strange. But I just wanted to read like one or two of, of these activities for you guys. So it's like, um, before you read chapters four through six, think about these questions. Why did Paul and Amanda Kirby come to the island? Do you think that the airplane will leave the island? What can stop it? Do you think that Eric and Ben are dead? Which person do you think will die first? <laughs> These are grim wow. questions. Wow. Before they go for dinner with Paul and Amanda Kirby, Billy and Alan talk. Work with another student and have this conversation. Student A, you are Alan. You don't want to help the Kirbys. You want to do your work. Tell Billy your feelings. Student B, you are Billy. You want Alan to work for the Kirbys because you have to have money for the site. Tell him your feelings. Wow, like, oh, I see, because you're role-playing it in a second language. I see, I see. If you go to this website, it's crazy. They have everything from, like, Les Miserables to, like, Tom Sawyer. Wow. And then there's, like, this writing component. I just want to read two of these. So, like, Alan thinks Jurassic Park has to close, but what will happen to the dinosaurs? Write your ideas to him in a letter. Huh, huh. You work for a newspaper. You are talking to the boss of InGen. The company made dinosaurs, and some of the pteranodons are more than two meters high. Why? Write your conversation with the boss. After everybody arrives home, Ellie writes a story for a newspaper. Ellie writes for the newspaper? I didn't know that. <laughs> it begins, when Alan phoned me from Ilsa Sorna, I dot 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 finished the story. Wow. This franchise just branched out like yeah. further than anyone could have possibly imagined. I do want to read from the junior novelization just one final passage and then everyone everyone's free because this is this is during the Alan and Ellie scene in the opening okay you know and it just gives a little more I think about like their relationship and it might explain like if this was in the movie it might have helped a little hmm. bit maybe so this is Alan just getting ready to leave dinner that night oh and keep in mind this is a junior novelization so yeah right okay right he rolled down the window and Ellie crouched beside it. Times change, Alan, Ellie said. But you're still the best. I mean that. The last of my breed. Alan looked away. I better get going. Let me know if I can help, Alan, Ellie said. You're bad about asking for help, but please ask me. Anything, anytime. Alan nodded reassuringly as he turned the key in the ignition. He didn't want Ellie to worry about him. Ellie was happy with the life she had chosen. Maybe if things had been different, if he had been different, he might have been the one to share that life with her. Whoa. But he hadn't been ready to make that commitment, and he still wasn't. Not to her, not to anyone. Not when there was so much work to be done. Paleontology, the focus of his entire life, stood on the brink of extinction. Many believed that all dinosaur scientists had to do now was travel to Ilsa Sorna or Ilsa Nublar, the two Jurassic Park sites, and study the living dinosaurs there. But Alan knew different. Dinosaurs, true dinosaurs, lived 65 million years ago. The answer to how they lived were in the fossil record, not in the genetically engineered theme park monsters that John Hammond and InGen had created for profit. Alan was one of the few scientists still dedicated to keeping the study of fossils from perishing. His career had to come first. Ellie touched his hand. When I met you, I thought that millions of years ago, all the dinosaurs became extinct, wiped out. But you told me otherwise. When conditions changed, dinosaurs became other things. They evolved. 
A well-accepted theory, Alan said. Ellie stared at him for a long moment. He could feel the love they would always share. Alan, she said with a seriousness he hadn't expected, don't be afraid to evolve. Wow. And with that, I conclude Jurassic Park 3's book club. I think I liked that better than any of their scenes in the movie. Yeah. I wonder if they were in the script and they got cut out. You know, like they they figured they didn't have time. They were trying to get to the dinosaurs or whatever. But that's and maybe it's, again, it's probably just because I like <laughs> I like Laura Dern so much. I want to see more of her. But I thought, yeah, that was yeah, I, uh, that's interesting. The guy who wrote the Jurassic Park three junior novelizations is Scott Sciencen, but he he writes like a whole bunch of dinosaur related fantasy novels and stuff so this is his bread and butter Mm. but it does say based on a motion picture screenplay written by peter bachman so i don't know if he got an early draft or a later draft or like sometimes they do with these novelizations you know you just have to fill in the blanks for yourself sometimes so that could have just been from him i see i see I'm surprised there were there have been as many iterations in on the page as there as there have been. And yeah, this movie's no better or worse than I remembered it. <laughs> middle of the middle of the road, which is hard because I feel like it could have been pretty cool. Well, in addition to all of those uh novelizations and stuff, there are actually seven video games released to coincide with this movie, just this movie. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. That seems excessive. Like, I knew there was a bunch for Alien 3, but not that many. Well, maybe it's all of the different movies that this movie could have been, just in video game form. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me tonight. You're officially free to go. So that's going to wrap it up for Jurassic Park 3. I have to thank you guys again very much for spending time with me tonight. Tobin, Kara, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. For all things Third Time's a Charm, please visit cageclub.me, that's cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or Facebook at Third Time's a Charm page. You could also email me at three at cageclub.me, that's T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. I'm Mike, and this has been Third Time's a Charm. Thanks for listening. Three, that's a magic number. Three. It's the magic number. Three may stop me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean? Coming up next, third time's a charm. Mr. Corleone, all bastards are liars. Shakespeare wrote poems. What am I doing?